Let us pray. Our Father, great God of all glory, we come once more to meet together in the name of Christ Jesus. And we do ask that this evening hour thy hand of blessing may be upon us as we open up thy word. And we ask that you will indeed speak unto our hearts show us something of thy glory and grace. Lift up high the Lord Jesus Christ that we might indeed Grow in grace, knowledge, and love of the Lord. And so we commend our meeting into thy care this night. In Christ Jesus' name, Amen. <coughs> now we're in Acts chapter 2 again, please. Acts chapter 2 and we read verses 21 to verse 23 and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved ye men of Israel hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, once more, we come to join with Peter as he's before this great crowd and he's taken the opportunity to preach the gospel, to declare God's word. And last time we saw how Jesus of Nazareth had been approved of God by miracles and wonders and signs and how the people knew about this and we come tonight to see what Peter has to say about his death last week we looked at his life Tonight we're going to look at his death and looking ahead, verse 24 is about his resurrection. And later on we say it's about his exaltation. Tonight, his death. You see that Peter is in the midst of applying the law to the hearts seeking conviction of sin so says Richard Lansky 
Would you say, Jesus of Nazareth, approved of God by the miracles, had died. But not only had he died, but he died in a particular manner. A particularly humiliating manner. He claimed to be the Messiah. God's anointed one. But he died in this terribly degrading way. Seemingly the victim at the mercy of others. Not the glorious Messiah that people were looking for. And we see the problem that the Jews had. If we turn please to John chapter 12. And the 31st verse. 12th chapter of John's Gospel. And the 34th verse. And we see in the context there that. Jesus is talking about being lifted up. From the earth. Drawing all men onto him. Verse 33, this he said, signifying what death he should die. Verse 34, the people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, the, the people, the Jewish people, were familiar with the scriptures that taught that Messiah would be a, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, for instance. They were looking for a Messiah whose throne would endure. They were not looking for one who would come to die. And when the Lord Jesus spoke to them of his death, they despised him for it. And they ridiculed him. Who is this son of man? No time for this message at all. But they only showed, of course, their ignorance in despising what the Lord Jesus was saying. They didn't know the scriptures. We're familiar with them, but we just look briefly. Psalm 22. Psalm 22 there. Verse. Uh, 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. In Isaiah 53, <coughs> part of the servant song here, chapter 53, we read at the seventh verse. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. 
for the transgression of my people was he stricken. You see, the scriptures were very clear. The coming one, yes, would be glorious. Yes, would endure. But they had missed out this part of the predictions. That he would suffer. That he would die. They were mistaken. Because they only looked at the scriptures that pleased what they wanted. They wanted a political deliverer that would restore their greatness as a nation. That would put them on top of everybody else. Confirm how they already saw themselves. They were righteous. They weren't like these sinners. And they were pleased about it. Certainly, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, the leaders, so many of them were like this in their attitude. So that's the problem when you present a suffering, a crucified Messiah. There's this question. Now, what does Peter have to say? He starts off with this word, him. He states it emphatically. Him. This Jesus of Nazareth. Him. The one approved of God. The one who did these miracles. Him. Being delivered. Being delivered. There's a very significant phrase here. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Being delivered. It doesn't say he was taken, he was arrested, he was grabbed in the night. It says he was delivered, given over. It has the idea of being surrendered to the enemy. He was delivered. He wasn't captured. He wasn't overwhelmed. But willingly delivered. Do you remember that scene when Judas and that group came? When Judas came to betray him and they came to arrest him. Jesus gave himself up to them quite willingly. The disciples seemed to have wanted to make a fight of it. But Jesus, he, he overcame those who came to arrest him. They fell back. But he was willingly arrested. But it's so much more than that. Because that was the whole purpose he'd come for. He had come to die. 
He wasn't overwhelmed. He was delivered to his enemies. Given into their care. By the determinate counsel. This word here, determinate, is the word horizo, from which we get the word horizon. It's surprising when you go through some of these words in the scriptures and you find that the words we have in English that come from some of these Greek words. And this is, this is one of them, the word horizon we have. And it means marked out boundary. We can look and that's the boundary we see between the sky and the surface of the earth, the horizon. That just gives us a glimpse of what it means. It means this fixed mark. Or fixed decision. It doesn't mean a a resolute decision. But a fixed decision. One that has been made. It will not be altered. The determinate counsel. You see this word is used. Later in Acts, we read about the, the, uh, the disciples determined to send relief. They came to a fixed decision. You see that in Acts 11, verse 29. The disciples came to a fixed decision. They set a, a boundary down, as it were. That's what they were going to do. They heard there was going to be a famine coming and they determined to send relief. But this was the decision that God had set down, had marked out. Not at the point that Jesus died. But before all creation. By the determinate counsel. This was a decision. This was the volition. This was the will of God. Peter couldn't have been stronger or clearer. When this Jesus of Nazareth approved of God by these miracles, when he came and suffered and died, it was no accident. It wasn't an afterthought. It was God's settled will. It was what God had planned. He had come to die. He had come to suffer and die. 
And as we saw, when you open the scriptures up, we can read Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, both of which could have been written by one of the evangelists as part of the gospel. They are accounts of his actual suffering. What happened? Who told him? And all mapped out so many years before. God had revealed his will to us. And yet, the people, the religious leaders, had not taken heed to what God's revealed will said. Isn't that a frightful thought? These religious leaders were so devout in so many areas of life, so concerned for the details, but they laid aside the weightier matters. They had failed to see what God's will was for the coming Messiah. The determinate counsel. And for knowledge. This is the word prognosis from which we can recognize the word prognosis when you go to get a medical opinion very often if it's something serious you give you the prognosis the educated medical opinion as to what's going to happen to you Sometimes it's a calculated guess, and sometimes it's just a guess. But with God, it, it's not an opinion. With God, it's not a guess. It's not a possibility. God's foreknowledge is so much stronger than that. God knowing before. This, in, the, in this phrase in the scripture before us, I'm reliably advised, it's in the instrumental dative case. And that that shows that the foreknowledge was at the back of it actually happening. God foreknew it. It happened. As I say, the death of Jesus of Nazareth was no afterthought. 
was no accident. It was God's settled will. It was God's foreknowledge. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken. Now we've seen the death of the Lord Jesus was not an accident. It was what God had planned. It was what God had set down. But, on the other hand, those who did it had their active part, their active responsibility. Just because it was God's plan did not make them innocent. We saw this with Judas. It was foretold that Judas would betray. The Lord Jesus foretold that Judas would betray. The Lord Jesus warned Judas. Judas insisted on going and getting that money and betraying him. Judas was guilty. And here, Peter is laying down. Yes, it was God's plan that Messiah would come, suffer and die. But ye have taken and by wicked hands are crucified and slain. Ye have taken. You see, Jesus was surrendered to their will. And this phrase, ye have taken, is, is not a passive phrase. It's active. They actually took him. They took him and they, they dealt with him as they wanted to. The desires of their hearts. God didn't have to force them to or coerce them to. They did it because they wanted to. They were guilty. We need to very clearly understand this. Ye have taken and by wicked hands. You know, when we think about the death of the Lord Jesus and what happened in those events, and then compare it with what Peter has to say here. There can be a tendency to think that Peter is addressing the wrong crowd. Because after all, many of these here are described as being from other places. We think of them perhaps as being just visiting for the feast. But even so, is it likely that they were all there or even mostly there when the Lord Jesus died? When he was on trial before that? 
who was responsible. You know, when we look at the trial of the Lord Jesus and what happened before it, it was the elders of the people. It was the chief priests and the scribes who arranged it all. They were the ultimate authority as far as the Jewish people were concerned. Yes, they were the Romans. But as far as the Jewish people were concerned, they were the ultimate authority. They were the, the Sanhedrin. If the Romans hadn't been there, they would have been the rulers of the people. They were the ones that took charge and were responsible for it. And we see in Matthew 27, the 25th verse, we see here in this passage that Pilate is standing before a great crowd of the people. At the end of the 24th verse, he says before that crowd, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. You see, in the crowd in Jerusalem, there was no doubt about it. They were willingly accepting responsibility. So we have the leaders of the people, the leaders of the nation. We have the crowd that were there. But you know, it goes wider than that. One of the commentators I was reading says that any of the Jewish people, any of them, who heard of what had happened, who did not immediately disavow it personally, was guilty of what had happened. He was the promised Messiah. Come in accordance with the Scriptures which they were familiar with. And when these scriptures came true, if they didn't immediately see it as being wrong when they heard of it, they stood guilty too. I think he has a point there. Their responsibility in the light of God's word, in the light of the facts before God's word. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands. This word wicked is the word meaning without law or lawless. 
we see it used in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, the 21st verse. Paul here is writing about his preaching of the gospel. Verse 20 says, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law, to them that are without law, as without law. You see, the Jews had all the ceremonial, all the judicial laws given them by God. And when Paul was amongst them, witnessing to the Jews, he would fit in with that. To the Jews I became a Jew as under the law. But when he was out witnessing to the Gentiles, to those who didn't have the law, he was as without the law. The point being that the Gentiles are those who do not have God's law. They were the ones who were lawless. And I would suggest that this phrase before us and by wicked hands have crucified and slain is speaking of how the Jews there took their long promised Messiah and handed him over to those who did not have the law to be crucified and slain. It compounded their sin. It made the evil even more. They involved other people in it. People who didn't have the light that they had. They insisted upon it, in fact. As we saw, Pilate tried to avoid carrying out their wishes. Pilate was warned about it. He knew in his conscience it was wrong. His wife warned him to have nothing to do with this just man. But they insisted and prevailed upon him. They threatened him. That they would report him to Caesar. They handed him over. And you know, there were, there were rules in the law of God in how people were to be dealt with and treated. They handed the Lord Jesus over to the Romans so that he would be dealt with according to their principles and practice without any of the constraints of God's law. Ye have taken 
and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Literally, it's speaking of him being impaled. The nails driven in. They didn't do it personally. The Roman soldiers hired Pilate to do that. But nevertheless, they were responsible for everything that happened to the Lord Jesus. It's what they wanted, it's what they demanded, it's what they insisted upon. They were responsible. So, of course, were the Romans. But Peter here is addressing a Jewish crowd. Everyone is responsible for what they do. And in a crime, everybody can be responsible for the whole of the crime, even if they only did a part of it. They stand guilty. Peter is speaking to their hearts. He's applying the law to highlight their guilt. To bring them to repentance. You know, people have to see their personal guilt before God if they are to see their need of forgiveness. The righteous man doesn't need any forgiveness. A healthy person doesn't need a doctor. You've got to see your sin. Peter is bringing it so clearly to them. They had done away with their Messiah. They had killed him. But it was all in God's plan. God's determinate counsel and foreknowledge. You know, it's it's hard, isn't it, to think of God planning and using suffering and death. The suffering and death of His Holy One he whom you know sin? Using that for good? Using that for the good of terrible sinners? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When we Look in the scriptures. We find that God does use suffering. And it's not just the Lord Jesus. If we turn to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We're very familiar with this verse. But do we really believe it? Do we trust in these words? 
It's alright trusting in them when things are going well. But what happens when things are not going well? From our viewpoint. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good to them that love God. To them that are called according to his purpose. Do we know that? Do we grasp it? Do we, do we really trust it? When things go wrong, do we say, I trust that the Lord is using this for my good? My ultimate good? We have a great example of this in the life of Joseph. If we turn back to Genesis and the 45th chapter. Remember Joseph, that lad sent by the father to visit the brethren. They saw him coming. They were filled with envy. They plotted to kill him. They cast him into a pit. They sold him as a slave. <coughs> he was come to do the Father's will. And they despised him and abused him and would have killed him. He sold him as a slave. He ends up in prison. Having been accused of attempted rape, Joseph, entirely innocent of anything, ended up in prison. And he spent a long time suffering. His suffering is different from what we mostly have to endure. But there are Christian people who have to endure similar types of suffering. If you remember, Joseph had had those revelations from the Lord. He'd had those dreams. But there was nothing in the dreams that said he would be cast into a pit sold into slavery, thrown into jail, falsely accused of rape, and forgotten. But what the Lord had told him was that he would be used at some point for good. And in chapter 45 here, Joseph has been exalted. His brothers have come because of the famine. In their extremity they came to him. And when he revealed himself unto them, they were troubled in his presence. But in verse 8 we read, So now, it was not you that sent me hither, but God 
and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. It was not you that sent me hither, but God. God had sent him down that entire road. That entire road of humiliation and suffering. When there was no prospect of him being raised up for so much of that time. In chapter 50 and the 20th verse, after Jacob has died, after Jacob has been buried, his brothers are worried. You see, they think that Joseph has been merciful to them for his father's sake. After all, Joseph knows that his father's heart was broken when he thought his son was dead. And so they think he's been merciful to them until his father would die. And we see here Joseph's response. Verse 20 But as for you, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And you know, I believe that Joseph had his trust in the Lord all those years that he was suffering. He is a great type of Christ and a great example for us in our lives. The book of First Peter deals with suffering. You know, we can have that confidence God is in control God does use the circumstances of our lives the suffering of our lives for our good if we love the Lord if we are the called according to his purpose do we trust him as I say, the book of First Peter is worthy of study, but we'll not take time to look at it tonight. What we will do, though, is to look at the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 22. And this is the Lord Jesus. And he'd gone to the Mount of Olives. He's looking ahead to what is coming. He comes in prayer. He 
see verse 41. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. Did you know that's the first point we must note and follow? When suffering is to be faced, we should come down in prayer. That should be the first response of our hearts. Verse 42 saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. You know, this suffering that he was to face is utterly beyond our comprehension. When he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When that darkness was upon the face of the earth. It's beyond what we can comprehend. If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We need to have this submissive dependency we can have hope if the will of God is done we can have hope we can trust him he will work all things together for good to them that love him to them who are the called according to his purpose. The Lord Jesus did not die as an example for us, but we can learn from his example nonetheless. He died to pay the penalty, to save his people from their sins. And we can rejoice if we know and love the Lord Jesus in what he accomplished for us. We can rejoice it wasn't an accident. It wasn't God just manipulating the events. It was God's plan. It was God's plan to save sinners like us. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we've been thinking this night upon the death of our Saviour. The ground upon which we stand is hallowed ground. Oh, we do pray indeed that our hearts will be filled 
with a sense of wonderment and praise. That we will rejoice, that we can trust. We can trust Thee to work all things together for good. To them that love Thee. To them who are the called according to Your purpose. For we see how You did this with Joseph. We see how You did this with the Lord Jesus. Oh, bless Your word to our hearts this night, we pray. Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.